Hello and welcome to Jesuitical, a new podcast from the vividly young, pitifully hip, and oddly lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Olga Segura, and I just want to start off by thanking all of you for our Apple podcast reviews. Last week, we gave away a few copies of Jim Martin's Between Heaven and Mirth. And this week, we're going to give away some additional books if you guys leave us reviews. And this week, we're giving away A Big Heart Open to God, A Conversation with Pope Francis. So make sure to leave us reviews and encourage your friends to do so. And also, send us an email with your username in the subject line. Don't forget to do that, guys. This would be a great Christmas gift for yourself or for your family and friends. So as you know, we've been winding down for the Christmas season, so we don't have our usual format. That means no SOTs or consolations and desolations, but we've got some really, really great interviews for you guys. This week, I am especially excited to introduce David Gonzalez, who is from the South Bronx and writes is an award-winning journalist at the New York Times. And I think if I could say top five dream jobs, this would be one of them. He's been covering New York City since 1990. And he takes photos, he take, writes essays, and really like brings stories from marginalized people all across New York City to the New York Times audience. So, And he's really, really great. You guys are totally going to enjoy this, so stay tuned. Today, we're excited to welcome David Gonzalez. He is an award-winning journalist at the New York Times. Born in the South Bronx, he's been covering New York City since 1990. Um, he is the Side Street columnist, where he writes and shoots a bi-weekly photo and essay. Um, and he's also the co-editor of the Times Lens blog. Welcome to Jesuitical, David. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to this. Very excited. I'm always excited when I get to, like... I feel like Zach. I get to talk that I'm about the Bronx, so... <laughs> Is there any other borough? From the Bronx? No, um, I'm from Ohio. Ohio, so. Ohio. Actually, Ashley, this is where we reveal that to you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, David, what's it like to be a Catholic at the New York Times? What's it like to be a Catholic at the New York Times? Mm -hmm. I, I mean, it's an interesting place to be Catholic. I mean, when I got there in 1990, you know, Peter Steinfels was there. And so there was somebody there who was a Catholic thinker. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, it felt good to be able to just talk to him about stuff that I was interested in. I really hadn't developed much of a serious interest in covering religion, but, you know, he just became a friend. And, 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 talk. and he's, the, he's affiliated with Commonweal for yeah, people yeah. who don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that other magazine. <laughs> yes, Brand X. Yes. <laughs> As we used to call Time Magazine when I worked at Newsweek, Brand X. Brand but I mean, um, you know, most newsrooms, it's no surprise, are, are very secular places run by people who are secular humanists. By and large, I mean, they'd like to think of themselves as good people who are out to counter injustice. And um, they sometimes have a difficulty. I'm not just talking about the times, okay? The difficulty understanding people of faith. I was the religion writer for about a year and a half in the, in the mid-90s, early to mid-90s. And I remember that, you know, I was doing religion stories. And uh, at one point, they had some, some homicide in Brooklyn where, you know, some 10-year-old kid had a toy gun. He got shot dead. And they wanted me to do that. And I'm like, why? I'm working on a story about, you know, Catholics and the environment. This is back in 93. Why should I drop that? I'm the only person here who could do that story. But it always struck me that they would be willing to pull you off your religion story to do something else. 
And it's never like, let's pull somebody off something else and do a religion story. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Unless it's the Pope. Then they, you know, yeah. all bets right. are off. Then it's like, oh, well, <laughs> Is that the new is to it? this Pope or has it always been? It's always been like that. It's Whenever there's a papal like visit. As somebody said, the reason the Times covers the, the Vatican so much, it's because it's the only other institution that thinks it's infallible. So, <laughs> <laughs> that's not my line. Somebody else told me that. But I mean, you know, you know, but the flip side is that if you have good ideas about anything, you know, they're going to let you run with it. Just like you know, when I got to the Times, I started writing stories about the Bronx. They started seeing stories about the Bronx that they never saw before, mm-hmm. that didn't involve like you know, tragedy or criminality or dysfunction, that involved people maybe facing those things in their neighborhoods, but trying to live that with some dignity and also to point out that these conditions do not exist in a vacuum. They have a context, both social and political and economic. With religion, it was the same thing. So I started doing stories based on one assumption – Let's stipulate that people believe there's a God rather than let's get all like, you know, is this? No, no, no. People believe this and they believe it. And, you know, what I'm interested in is not what happened on Sunday or Friday or Saturday, you know, your day of worship, but what happened once you're outside of your house of worship, you know, how does that play out in people's lives? And that's what really got me interested in religion was trying to write religion stories about people's lives. Uh, and you know they let me have you know free reign. You know, I was able to do stories like you know the hardest one I think I did was uh, asking uh, asking people why they pray to Saint Jude. Mm. You know, and I would stand by the shrine over by Sloan Kettering and Saint Dominic's, and also the one down here by Saint Francis. And you'd wait for people to stop praying, and then you'd walk up to them. And imagine you're asking somebody who's praying to the patron of the impossible, "What did you pray for?" Wow. And yeah. obviously, there was some intense stuff. What was interesting about that was the insights as to what it gave us about what people thought was impossible, what people thought was a miracle. And I interviewed James Gill up in Hartford, a Jesuit up there, who said, you know, people think the miraculous is something unexpected or something they didn't think. The miraculous is something that has no other explanation, but. <laughs> mm-hmm. But it was interesting. People were, the impossible that people were praying, the miracles they were praying for were like a job. <laughs> That for some people, that was as intense as it got. I need to get a job. I need to, my son is addicted. I need to deal with that. Those are interesting things that told us a lot about the times that we lived in. I could do stories like that. You know, why, why, why midnight mass was held at eight o'clock in the evening in some neighborhoods. During the crack wars, you didn't want to be on the streets at midnight. So you didn't have midnight mass. And so you'd always, you know, and it happened because I was visiting this pastor that I knew, John Flynn of St. Martin of Tours. And yeah, he was joking. Saying, oh, people are calling and saying, what time is midnight mass? I'm like, what? He goes, no, we really have to change. You can't be out here late at night. It's too dangerous. Yeah. See, in Ohio, it was just because the pastor was sleepy. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, so it sounds like when you were on the religion beat, it yeah. sounds a lot like now that you're on the local beat. You, you bring the same It's about people. It. Yeah. It's about people. I mean, my, my type of journalism is pretty a pretty straightforward proposition. Mm-hmm. Which is, let me go talk to people and see what's on their mind and see what they're facing yeah. and try to highlight people's lives. And I, I always write my stories, my columns um, with characters, you know, with personalities, people that you can follow. And also, you know, ideally some sort of narrative arc. And that's like, yeah. the, that's like for me as a writer. <laughs> but what I like is always, I like to be the first reporter anybody ever talked to. Let me put it that way. Yeah. You know, so that's the kind of thing that I like to do and approach them in a very low key kind of way. I was going to say, what approaches do you take if you're the first reporter they've talked to? They might not be used to. They're not. Right. So do you do you explain more things to them? And I explain things to them. I also um, tell them very sh- up front. If there's something you don't want to talk about, 
tell me. We won't talk about it. Mm-hmm. I'm not here to, you know, get you in a gotcha. I'm here to talk to you. And, you know, I'm interested in this. And um, if there's anything that you'd rather not say, I'll respect that. It, with some stories, it becomes a major part of it. I did. A, I spent six months with a mixed status family where the mother, father, and sister were all undocumented and the youngest son was was born. He was a citizen. And the only way I was able to do that was to give them my word that I would never publish their names. And, you know, good luck writing a 2,600-word story without using anybody's names. Mm-hmm. But luckily, what I was able to do was re- refer to everybody as the mother, the father, the daughter, the son. And that's how it was for that whole story. And a lot of it is putting people at ease because the, the, the preconceptions that they have about the media, you know, are not good, shall we say. And they've gotten worse uh, yeah. <laughs> since last January, unfortunately, where people just think we make stuff up. You know, I wish we could have made up the landmine that took off the legs of my friend Zhao, but hey, you know, he was just working for the failing New York Times. <laughs> yeah. So recently you've been covering a lot about uh, Puerto Rican mm-hmm. living in New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, your parents uh, came from Puerto Rico, is that right? My parents came from Puerto Rico when they were teenagers. Yeah. They met here. Uh, for those of you playing at home, they met at La Milagrosa, which is a, a famous Puerto Rican parish from the 40s that's long gone. gone. Uh-huh. Um, but you know, my folks came here from there. And I, you know, I, I grew up in the South Bronx when there was a growing Puerto Rican community. There was a rich Puerto Rican culture. So I grew up listening to certain songs, eating certain foods, listening to the language. I didn't really get really good in Spanish until I was in my 20s. And then I really, you know, decided to get serious about my Spanish and I use it every day now. I've, I've reported entire projects in Spanish. Mm-hmm. I've worked overseas. So it's, it's a great gift my parents gave me because they had very little. But growing up the way that I grew up and then becoming a journalist and seeing how those communities were covered, you know, left you kind of aghast because they would either say things that were so clueless or just, you know, sent the wrong people in to do it. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to be honest. If you don't have certain linguistic skills, I'm not talking just about English or Spanish, but even like how you speak English, mm-hmm. you know, people are going to react to you a certain way. And so with me, it's always been, you know, wanting to reflect these neighborhoods and these people that have been misunderstood. And I wound up gravitating to certain things, writing about the Bronx, especially the South Bronx, writing about culture in those places, writing about how people survive, writing about religion, because religion is a major part of people's lives in these neighborhoods, and you'd be a fool not to acknowledge that. And one of the ways that I covered it was like, you know, I had a lot of contacts with priests and nuns all over the city, and it was better than knowing cops. Cops (laughs) only saw the bad guys under certain circumstances, Mm -hmm. you know, priests and nuns saw them bad guys and good guys all the time. And it was good. No, it was good that yeah. way. But I mean, I wanted to present a view of either Catholicism or people in the South Bronx or Puerto Ricans, you know, in a way that portrayed us as real people, not these cutouts, you know. And, and, and it's critical now because Puerto Ricans really were the first large Latino group in this city. And the gains that the pioneers made for us are shared by all the other Latino groups that have moved here ever since, bilingual education, voting rights, all those things. You know, those are things that Puerto Ricans helped, and we shared it with everybody. And I think sometimes people don't really give us the credit that we deserve or treat us with the respect that we merit. Um, And so I've always written about Latinos, especially Puerto Ricans, and Puerto Ricans in the Bronx is a slam dunk. I got to write about that. But I mean, it's also, you know, I'm at a point in my career, I'm 60 years old. I've been doing this since I was 26. And, um, 
you know, I don't longer have to worry about anything in the sense that I write about what I want to write about. And I want to write about Puerto Ricans because I know it. It's vital to me. And if I don't write it, somebody else will, and they'll get it wrong, and I'll be upset. Right. So I'd rather write about that, and especially now. We're seeing what's happening now with after you know Hurricane Maria. I mean, four of my last five columns have been about the hurricane, mm-hmm. and my next one's going to be about the hurricane. What are, what are those stories from the from people from Puerto Rico living in New York? What what's the angle? Well, the stories the that I've done hurricane. before was, you know, somebody I know, his mother, who was the founder of an, an influential community organization in the Bronx, she's since retired. She went down to Puerto Rico to, like, get her house ready to retire down there. Maria hit, and a week later, she dies of respiratory failure. And it's not being counted as an official hurricane death, but, you know, her son's an EMT, and he knows to re- how to read medical charts. He's saying, no, she died because she was there, and, you know, so things like that. Or there was a, a one that I did... One of the things I also like to write about is I, I write about street art or graffiti. And I know a lot of the, the major figures from like the 70s and New York graffiti world. And one of them on Instagram two weeks ago, three weeks ago, put up a picture of a mural they had just done in, a, in an auto body shop in the Bronx. And it was like the famous Iwo Jima picture of the flag raising, mm-hmm. but it was construction workers lifting up a utility pole with the Puerto Rican flag on top, mm-hmm. but like the Iwo Jima mm-hmm. shot. And it's this gorgeous mural. I mean, it's absolutely stunning. And the reason the artist did it was because, you know, his mother was stuck in her house, you know, for like a week and a half and he was going crazy. And then he wanted to do something to honor the Puerto Rican spirit. What's really funny is, I mean, we live in this cosmopolitan city and yet, you know, some of the largest groups in this city, people don't understand Mexicans, Dominicans, and Puerto Ricans. They just don't, you know, they think we're all the same. And it's like, if you have half an ear, you can tell we don't talk the same Spanish for Christ's sake. Yeah. That was one of the things I love the idea of a Latino, like telling other Latino stories. That was something I encountered when I started at Fordham. Like I'd meet people, I'd be in a class and be the only non-white person in the class. And they'd be like, oh, what are you? I'm like, I'm a Dominican from the Bronx. And they're like, oh, is that kind of like a Puerto Rican? And I'm like, no, it is not kind of like that. It's I mean, really much a Dominican, you know? Yeah. Um, but they don't They don't get that. They just see they us don't. as, and you know, for a city that's supposedly sophisticated, mm-hmm. we don't really factor into their thinking. We're the people that deliver their groceries or, you know, yeah. watch their kids. Yeah, or drive their cabs. Exactly. Like that's how, you know. And we have no other life beyond that. Mm-hmm. And that is maddening because yeah. if you look at it from a faith perspective, well, we're keeping the Catholic Church afloat in this city, mm-hmm. actually. Yeah. You know, yeah. and it's, it's, it's always true. funny to hear people saying, oh man, the Catholic Church, I mean, church attendance is down. And I just say, have you gone to a Spanish mass lately? Because <laughs> <laughs> they'll be, they'll be standing room only in the mm-hmm. back. But you go to, you go to like Immaculate Conception in, in the hub in the South Bronx. It's like literally standing room only. That's mm-hmm. a big church. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we're not being acknowledged for the things that we are doing that contribute to this place. You know, and that's a, it's an important thing. And that's, again, why I write about Catholicism regularly and why I write mm-hmm. about – and also the intersection between Catholicism and our identity mm-hmm. and class. So, like, when when the Arch – everybody does these stories, oh, the Archdiocese is closing the schools, Archdiocese – oh, and everybody – and, you know, I wrote one story in the early aughts that kept the school open. So after that, everybody started calling me. Every school that was in trouble, I was like Superman. It's like mm-hmm. – and it, it happens regularly. They're going to close our school. They're going to do this. And, and I, I, I lucked out with Mount Carmel Holy Rosary in East Harlem. Mm-hmm. Somebody read it. They gave them 400 grand. And they're still open. <laughs> still open. My generation, I could list right now a bunch of graduates of Catholic schools who have gone on to great things in this city. Mm-hmm. You know, Freddie Ferrer, former Bronx Borough President, mayoral candidate, Sonia Sotomayor. And so I started thinking, talking to other 
overeducated Latinos who all went to Catholic school because we all got educated beyond our parents' wildest dreams. Mm -hmm. What I did was I wrote a piece where I interviewed people like Ted Shaw, the former head of the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund who went to Cardinal Spellman High School. Um, I interviewed all these people to show like how did your education as a Catholic, how did that influence you? How did it change your life? Because mm -hmm. I think a lot of us who grew up the way we did, like the first one in our families to go to college, I, mean, I know the moment my life, in retrospect, my life changed now. I know that moment. It was Father Principe, third year homeroom at Cardinal Hayes, where he sat down with each of us, went over our transcript and said, I think you should go to the Ivy League. I didn't know what the hell he was talking about. <laughs> I really didn't. I was going to go to Iona or Ford. My brother went to Iona. Good enough for him, good enough for me. Mm -hmm. You know, but he opened my eyes to this. And in retrospect, that conversation changed my life. And I, I told him that to the day he died. He just died like three months ago. But I mean, you know, these schools play a really important role. Mm -hmm. And so it was important to write about those. And it was also important not to romanticize it. Because the other thing, and, and I know America's been good about that. There have been stories in America that talked about not every Catholic school deserves to stay open. And that's a hard, that's a hard pill for people to swallow, but it's true. I know. I'm really mean about that. If I were in charge, I would close 75% of parishes. Uh, I mean, it's a different city. You can't, you can't yeah. sustain it anymore like that. Well, and just like, like, would you rather have like five half open or like 20% full churches, right? Or a full one? It's a no brainer for me. No, you want a full church, but more importantly, what you want from a church, I think, is a church that's really active, a real active parish yeah. community. And that's, you know, that's when you need a critical mass. And that's where I've seen it over and over again, again, in some of the poorer Latino parishes, St. Simon's Stock up in the Bronx, which I did a huge profile on before uh, Francis visited in 15. You know, they got lay people, man, they, they got it down. Lay people are running all the big committees. They are really partners with their pastor who is very forward thinking. And it's a thriving, lively parish. You go there and you feel things are happening. And then I go to some like, you know, English masses in some places, and it's like, oh, please, just shoot me. Yeah, <laughs> no, 100%. I'm not so, going to name parishes, but if anybody knows, knows what I'm talking about. So, so, David, you are a journalist, and you're also a photographer. How do you decide which stories you only want to tell visually versus stories you want to actually just write? Well, my column is always one photograph with my column, and mm -hmm. so it's always going to be a photograph with a column. And sometimes what happens is the photograph dictates the column, and other times the column dictates the photograph. In other words, last Christmas, for example, I wrote a personal essay about a child's Christmas in the South Bronx and how, you know, come the holiday season, the supermarket would feature toys above the meat case. <laughs> this is before 99 cents toys would open the baguettes. <laughs> and so you'd go there and you'd be like looking at these toys like, please, I want this. Mm -hmm. Santa Claus, please. <laughs> and then I talked about how um, that one Christmas my cousin Hector got a bike and I didn't. And I said, I hope he breaks his neck. And my parents freaked and they made me say I was sorry to the angel on top of the Christmas tree. Oh I've, I've, had, I've had to do that kneeling yeah. many times before. So exactly. Incate. No, 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 you know, but I had to say, I'm sorry to the angel. Uh -huh. And to this day, those Christmas tree angels freak the hell out of me. They, wow. they spook me out. More so than my childhood fear of like seeing, you know, the Blessed Mother. Mm -hmm. Like I didn't want to be one of those kids who had a vision of anything. <laughs> I'm like, please don't. That's just too scary for me. You know, just let me be a regular kid. I don't want to have the weight of the world on me and have a vision. But jokes aside, you know, I, I, I decided to write that. And I remembered I had a photograph that I'd taken out in Diker Heights at those crazy Christmas houses in Diker Heights of these two kids looking at an angel 
at one of these Christmas and they're poking one in the eye. I said, that's the picture I'm going to run with my collar. <laughs> so I did that. I've always thought of, you know, Catholicism in general is thought of as being more image friendly, I uh-huh. guess, uh-huh. in faiths. Do you like, uh, you know, stained glass and statues yeah. and uh, do you feel like that part of your upbringing influenced your, the work you do now? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I remember as a kid being fascinated by the Eucharist, you know, when it was out there on the altar, I just sit there looking at it, mesmerized. Um, and I go to churches now and I, I see these statues and I, it brings back memories, you know, like my favorite saint is still, you know, Martin de Porres, you know, he was, cause you know, my mother said, see, there were mice there and we had mice in our apartments. I think it, you know, okay for the saint, okay for us, you know, but, <laughs> but no, that sense of humility. So like my first time I went to, you know, um, I went to Lima on assignment. I made sure I took one day to go visit the tomb of Martin de Porres because that made a big influence on me when I was a child. And it made me think as a journalist, I mean, he's the patron of social justice. And, you know, for some stories that I do, that's all about that. And so those early encounters with saints and with, you know, a sacred environment, if you will, made me hungry to find more sometimes, whether it's in my personal life. I've gone through some pretty serious health challenges over the last few years, and that's helped. But also just, you know, to understand the world. And to understand, you know, it's always funny. I mean, I have friends, you know, who like say, oh, you know, they were raised Catholic. Oh, no, I'm really into spirit, you know, the spirit stuff and mysticism. And it's like, you know, read Sorwana. You want mysticism? Read John of the Cross, man. I mean, you, yeah. you, 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 yeah. we got our mystics, man. Oh, yeah. we, don't, we don't have to go halfway around the world to find mm-hmm. mystics. We got them in our tradition. And that's the funny thing is people don't understand the depth of our traditions. And, how, and for me, it was like those early moments for me were like a glimpse of that realm. You know, not that I, I don't want to tell people, yeah, I'm thinking about this all the time, but you asked the question. And I think those early encounters, and I think for a lot of us who were raised in my generation, did have an impact. You know, there was something real about this. You know, there was something very real. Uh, our last question, uh-huh. we ask all our guests, uh-huh. if you could canonize one person, living or dead, Catholic or not, fictional or real, who would it be? Canonize? Canonize. Yes. Or if you want to, like, stop at beatification. He's already been beatified. I'm just waiting for the canonization. Romero. 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 Romero Romero was already canonized by the people decades ago. It was clear the man was a saint. I mean, you get shot dead while celebrating the Eucharist after speaking out the day before, telling the army to lay down your guns, ordering them in the name of... I mean, I still get... My hair stands on end when when I listen to Romero's last... So that, well, his last sermon was the one at Divina Providencia when he got shot, but that Sunday address, that is one of the most amazing pieces of oratory and brave in that country at that time to order. I mean, it, I, or, I mean, how many times do you have somebody saying, I order you in the name of God? You don't get too many chances to say that, <laughs> you know? And here's a guy saying it, and he paid the price that he knew. He was gonna, and the thing is, he knew he was going to pay that price. He knew it. And it didn't stop him. That kind of bravery, that kind of engagement with the world. I mean, it's like, that's what we are. That's what we are at our best. Even in times of crisis. Because Salvador in those days was scary. I mean, you know, they kill Rutilio Grande. Then they kill him. Then they kill the nuns. Then they kill the Jesuits and, and the housekeeper and their daughter. I mean, and then they kill 75,000 other Salvadorans. But among the first was Romero. And he knew, you read his writings, he knew this was going to happen, but he had total faith, it's going to be all right. <laughs> so if you're talking about canonization, him, it's, it's, it's overdue. It's overdue. And 
He's Latino. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Yeah, I think we can say San Romero. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. People have been calling him San Romero de las Americas for a while now. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I got a friend who's an Episcopal priest, and he's already calling him San Romero de las Americas. <laughs> they have him out in, uh, uh, where is it, in Westminster? They have a statue of him with other saints. So, you know, other people recognize this man's a saint. It's mm-hmm. just, you know, it takes a while to catch up. Oh, yeah. Great. <laughs> Thanks so much for coming Thanks. on the oh, show. Oh, this was fun. Yeah. I really appreciate this. Oh, this yeah. is great. Thank you. No, I had a ball. All right. And if people want to find your work, are you on the If the you go to the, oh, Okay, if you want to find my work, just go to uh, Times Topics and look up my name, David Gonzalez, and you will get sent to a page that's everything I've ever written since day one of the New York Times. Okay. And Instagram? Instagram, 104BX. Okay. I'm like a Bronx guy. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Thanks so much. Right. Thank, Thank you. Thank you, David. hope that you enjoyed that interview. I know it was probably one of my favorite interviews this year, but I'm a little biased. David Gonzalez is from the Bronx, and he had some really cool things to say about being Catholic and just being at the New York Times. So I hope you guys enjoyed that. Now, we asked you guys this week, first of all, I just want to start off by saying I feel a little left out because we posted this question on Twitter asking you guys what your weirdest family Christmas tradition is. And I come from a pretty normal Christmas family because I'm doing none of these, none of the things that you guys did. For example, Marty writes in shrimp wiggle for dinner Christmas Eve. Yes, it's an actual dish. Google it. Then Robert Christensen wrote in his Christmas monkey with a picture of this really huge monkey like hovering over the Christmas tree, which I thought you were only supposed to have stars and angels, but whatever. No judgment from me. And then Allison writes in, does eating my body weights worth of lasagna and meatballs and then having to rally for midnight mass and look alive count as a weird family tradition? Yes, I think so. Coming from someone who has none, I think it counts. So thank you guys for sending in this listener feedback. And also on that note, I just want you listeners to know that I'll be attending my very first Midnight Mass this year. So I'll let you guys know how that goes in the new year. And this is really the very last episode of the year. So I hope you guys have a wonderful holiday. Merry Christmas. And I hope you have a blessed time with your family. And we will see you in 2018. Jesuitical is brought to you by America Media and produced by Eloise Blondial. Our editor is Noah Levingson. Jesuit formation provided by Eric Sundrup SJ. Engineering by Angelo Jesus Canta. Our logo is by Sean Tripoli. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. Please, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and don't forget to leave us a review and encourage your family and friends to do so also. And send us your questions, feedback, cocktail recipes, and tell us where you found God this week at Jesuitical at AmericaMedia.org. I'm Olga Segura for America Media. See you in 2018.